The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Explores. Time traveling through women's history, one era at a time. I'm your host, Kate Armstrong. Women nurses are an enduring symbol of the American Civil War. They were viewed as ministering angels, swooping in when supplies and morale were low to do what needed to be done. But the truth is that ladies were more soldiers than angels. They dodged bullets, slept in tents, and fought against the idea that they weren't supposed to be there. In a time when nursing was still very much a man's game, Ladies had to fight for their right to tend to the wounded at all. But war changed the rules, or rather, women pushed against those rules and made new ones, finding themselves in a whole new frontier. So let's travel back and step into the shoes of a Civil War nurse in all their heroic and disgusting glory. Tie back your hair, put on some bloomers, and stuff your pockets full of 21st century medicine. Let's go traveling. Before we dive headlong into our new lives as Civil War nurses, let's talk a little bit about where we're at with medicine in the year 1861. I warn you, you're not going to like how many years we are away from really understanding how disease works. Mid-century America is just starting to poke its head up out of the heroic age of medicine where we believe that making people better is all about balancing their humors. The main ways of achieving this aim are explosive and painful. Phlebotomy, a.k.a. bloodletting. Purging, a.k.a. inducing vomiting or diarrhea. And giving someone the good old-fashioned sweats. The idea is to get the bad stuff out of you, restoring the body's equilibrium. Let's shock the body back to wellness. Don't knock it. It worked for ex-president George Washington. After catching a cold via an ill-advised horseback ride through the snow, he was freed of several pints of his blood, given mercurous chloride, a tartar emetic to make him throw up, an enema because why not, and blistered with cantharidin, the stuff you use to take off your warts. And it worked. Oh, wait, he died. Just kidding. We're also operating under the century-strong miasmatic theory of disease. The idea that bad air, or miasms, from decomposing organic matter like sewage is what actually makes us sick. It makes sense if you think about it. Diseases like malaria are always worst in the South during the summer, when it's hot and sticky, and it seems to move in clouds. It must be the air. People with money leave cities like Washington and New Orleans in the summer for that very reason. 
But there are people starting to propose other theories. In 1854, an upstart named, amazingly, John Snow, created an illuminating map that charted an outbreak of cholera in his London neighborhood. He was able to trace the outbreak back to a single water well, suggesting that perhaps the disease was waterborne, not airborne. It was kind of a big deal, this theory. So by the time the Civil War comes around less than a decade later, we understand how disease spreads, right? Nope. Most people in 1854 just looked at that map and said, You know nothing, Jon Snow. We won't really understand how germs work until the 1880s. It will also be a while before we understand that cleanliness isn't just next to godliness, but also vital when it comes to saving lives. So in the 1860s, surgeons don't often change the sheets between surgeries. I mean, why bother? Referring with pride to that good old surgical stink. Joseph Lister will go on to theorize that cleanliness saves lives in hospitals, but not until 1867. Penicillin, saver of many lives, won't come around until the 1920s. Are we sensing a trend here? In some, as Civil War nurses, we're about to see a lot of lives lost that could have been saved had we known just a touch more. On top of that, medical training isn't what it will be in later centuries. Men only undergo about two years of training, plus some time as an assistant to another doctor, before they're allowed to go forth and blister people to their heart's content. They perform very little surgery, at least before the Civil War. These trained men are called regulars, but there are still plenty of irregulars out there trying to make a buck with little knowledge or experience and peddling a whole lot of terrible quackery. Shall we pause to talk about the treatments you might enjoy from a regular? When our intrepid Union lady spy Elizabeth Van Loo, who we'll meet properly in another episode, found herself tending to a dying soldier in her home, the doctor she summoned applied the following. Cold water anal injections, iodide of potassium, laudanum, and, for good measure, more enemas that involved both egg yolks and turpentine. In the end, the man died. I know, it's very shocking. One of the most common medicines of the day is mercury. Unless you're a woman and suffering from menstrual pains, childbirth problems, headaches, crying, or opinions, then probably it's laudanum, which is basically just opium. There, there. That'll keep you nice and quiet. At any rate, a lot of it is pretty toxic. In 1860, Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes said this about the contents of America's medical cabinets. I firmly believe that if the whole materia medica, as now used, could be sunk to the bottom of the sea, it would be all the better for mankind and all the worse for the fishes. It makes sense with all this violent purging and toxic enemas, that homeopathy is becoming popular. Introduced to America in the 1820s, this form of natural medicine had been around for many a century before. It posits that like combats like. So, a substance that might cause a symptom can, in small doses, be used to treat it. And it seems to work, too. Why? probably because homeopathists tend to have long consultations with their patients, taking what we now would call a holistic approach. 
They rely heavily on herbal remedies, good diet, and plenty of rest as cures instead of chemical enemas, thus giving the body a chance to heal itself. Let's be clear. Men in this era know extremely little about how women's bodies work, though they do know that most of your problems emanate from your evil uterus. So women often rely on female midwives during childbirth and their own herbal home remedies to deal with feminine aches and pains, as well as those of the rest of the family. After the Civil War, a gal named Lydia Pinkham will become quite famous for her natural remedy for female pains, which you'll be able to buy through the mail. In fact, you can still buy it through the mail in our century. So really, most day-to-day medical care is taken care of at home by women. But as regulars are becoming more established, they're finding ways of elbowing women out of the frame. Women have been on the medical scene forever. Take Metrodora, the ancient Greek doctor who was writing about gynecology way back in the 2nd century CE. Or Dorotea Bucca, 14th century chair of medicine at the University of Bologna. By the time we get to the mid-19th century, women are practicing medicine all over the place, especially out on the frontier. But as irregulars, without a license. Doctoring is in the public sphere, and men don't think that's the place for you. So almost all doctors and nurses are men. I say almost, because there are a few brave ladies who've battled their way through. Take Harriet Keziah Hunt. In the 1830s, after watching doctors treat her very sick sister with blistering and leeches, she turned to homeopathist Elizabeth Mott for help. She was so impressed by her work that Harriet studied with Elizabeth, eventually opening her own homeopathic practice. She applied to Harvard Medical School in the 1840s, and again in the 1850s, after 15 years of unofficially practicing medicine. The second time, the student body wrote a petition expressing outrage at the prospect of a woman in their midst. No woman of true delicacy would be willing in the presence of men to listen to the discussions of the subjects that necessarily come under the consideration of a student of medicine. It said, they object to having the company of any female forced upon us who is disposed to unsex herself and to sacrifice her modesty by appearing with men in the lecture room. Harriet wasn't surprised. But she did say, The facts are on record. When civilization is further advanced and the great doctrine of human rights is acknowledged, this act will be recalled, and wondering eyes will stare, and wondering ears will be opened at the semi-barbarism of the middle of the 19th century. Harvard won't be letting any women study medicine there until the 1840s. Susan Ann Edson was one of the first women to get a medical degree in America from Cleveland Homeopathic College in 1854. She'll go on to become President James Garfield's personal physician. But it's Elizabeth Blackwell who's credited as America's first female doctor. After being rejected from dozens of premier schools, she got into Geneva Medical College. But only because the faculty let the students vote, and they thought letting her in would be very funny. Elizabeth had to fight from start to finish to be taken seriously. Like when a teacher asked her to leave a lecture on reproduction because he felt it would be too much for her delicate ears. The joke was on them, though, 
She graduated in 1849 and went on to specialize in, you guessed it, gynecology and pediatrics. When the Civil War comes, the nation is woefully underprepared for the carnage. They don't have many army hospitals, and they don't yet have a central relief body. Amazingly awesome Civil War nurse Clara Barton will bring the Red Cross over to America eventually, but she hasn't gotten around to it yet. Before the war, the Union Army had 113 doctors. Some of those defected, going south, leaving about 87. Compare that to the number of soldiers Lincoln calls up at the beginning of the war. 75,000. That's one doctor for every 860 soldiers. And they only have 20 thermometers to go around. You'd think that they would be welcoming us lady nurses into the fold with open arms. But hospital nursing is squarely in the public sphere, and thus not everyone is keen to have us, especially with our annoying habit of getting in the way and trying to change things. But women nurses aren't an entirely new concept. Florence Nightingale became quite the sensation in the Crimean War of the 1850s, the lady with the lamp who roamed between soldiers' beds through the long nights, effective in her ability to soothe and treat. She paved the way for us Civil War nurses. But in the end, it's the Army's utter disorganization that will help us burst onto the nursing scene. From the very beginning of the hostilities, women did what they could to support the war effort. They got together to roll bandages, can food, knit socks, and raise money. The Union government denied that they needed supplies at first. All is well, ladies, thank you very much. But the war's early volunteer nurses knew better. Some soldiers were attacked by a mob in Baltimore, Maryland, in April 1861, even before the war's first big battle, and the injured were taken to Washington to be looked after. The army had nowhere to put them, so they were laid up in places like the Capitol building. There, volunteer nurse Clara Barton found hungry soldiers with no beds, no changes of clothes, and no supplies to tend them with. Afterward, she said, Our army cannot afford that our ladies lay down their needles and fold their hands. It quickly became clear that these many separate groups needed organizing. So the Women's Central Association of Relief in New York spearheaded by our lady doctor friend Elizabeth Blackwell and 24-year-old activist Louisa Lee Shiler, called together a conference to talk about the need for one central body. Some 4,000 women showed up. Of course, the government wasn't all that interested in this brilliant idea forwarded by women, so they turned to their male counterparts for help. Once they had some men on board to press their case, old Honest Abe was a little more amenable. And that is why, when the federal government created the United States Sanitary Commission in June 1861, most of its high-ranking officers were men, while most of its volunteers, you know, the actual workers, were women. The United States Christian Commission came later that year. The overarching goal of both of these organizations was to try and improve conditions at field and army hospitals including in the realm of bad hygiene. A big part of that effort meant sending efficient women out to nurse. We might first spend some time with Dr. Blackwell and some of her male doctor associates, 
who are offering a one-month nursing crash course. Yes, you heard that right. One month of training, if you get any training at all. Then we'll be sent to the commission superintendent, the intense and inexhaustible Dorothea Dix. If you've watched PBS's show Mercy Street, and if you haven't and you're listening, you really must. She's the one they call Dragon Dix. What we'll actually call her is General Dix, though never to her face. She was the first woman to serve in a federal-level position, appointed by Lincoln himself in 1861 after much harassing on her part. Though, I have to say, Abe's lukewarm on the whole lady nurse thing. Like many men of his time, he's concerned that women don't have what it takes to be wartime nurses. They'll faint, pulling focus in the attention of doctors. They'll get hysterical every time they see blood. In the early days... Even the Women's Central Association had to admit that women working in army hospitals are objects of continual evil speaking among course subordinates, are looked at with a doubtful eye by all but the most enlightened surgeons, and have a very uncertain, semi-legal position, with poor wages and little sympathy. To be fair, some nursing women earn a bad opinion. They swoop in of a morning to dab some brows and bring the boys pastries, only to end up fainting in the middle of the ward. Though, given what we know about Civil War stink, that's fair enough. This heavy dose of sexism is there from the beginning, and will continue in some quarters, no matter how good a nurse you are. Georgiana Woolsey was one of the first women nurses to volunteer in Washington City, where she said that surgeons made the lady volunteers scrub floors or assist in amputations to try and horrify them into leaving. When that didn't work, they tried to force them into unseemly accommodations. If anything, this only made Georgiana more determined. When she personally delivered a letter to the White House to ask Abe Lincoln to send some chaplains to the hospital, he did. Secretary of War Simon Cameron told Dorothea in no uncertain terms that he did not want ladies taking up residence in army camps and that their applications had to come with excellent references regarding their moral standing. And so General Dix crafts some very intense guidelines for who she'll accept into her corps of nurses. Past 30 years of age, healthy, plain almost to repulsion in dress, and devoid of personal attractions. Nurses are there to serve, not flirt or distract. So if you're hoping to find yourself a husband amidst those foul-smelling invalids, mystics would have you go home post-haste. So unsurprisingly, she hates the hoop skirt. Those things could knock a patient unconscious or start a fire. But mystics is also not a fan of the bloomer. You know, the 19th century version of a full-length skirt. She bans them in 1861, but as the war goes on, many nurses are going to wear it anyway. It's cleaner, and much less likely to get caught on anything disgusting, say, like weeping sores. So let's say we've made the cut with dicks. Hooray! We are repugnant! Will we be paid for our work? If we're with the USCC, then yes. We'll get a whole $12 a month. That's equivalent, in today's money, to about $336. But it does include rations, housing, and transportation, so count your blessings. 
Susie King-Taylor followed her husband and the 33rd United States Colored Troops as nurse, teacher, and laundress. I gave my services willingly for four years and three months without receiving a dollar. I was glad, however, to be allowed to go with a regiment to care for the sick and afflicted comrades. Like Miss Dix, Southern matrons like Louisa Chavez McCord are not interested in entertaining nurses of fashion. As my favorite witty Southern diarist, Mary Boykin Chestnut, put it, When McCord saw them coming in angel sleeves displaying all of their white arms and in their muslin showing all of their beautiful white shoulders and throats, she felt disposed to order them off the premises. That was no proper costume for a nurse. On one of Mary's hospital visits, she also recorded a scene in Richmond, Virginia, in which a pretty southern belle got upset because the men at Miss Sally Tompkins' hospital wouldn't stop looking at her. If you would leave your beauty at the door, she lamented, and bring in only your goodness and your energy. This may seem harsh, but these women are right to look for no-nonsense nurses. The job you're about to take on is not for the faint-hearted. So why go? Because women don't want to sit at home and do nothing. They can't actually fight, at least not as women. So nursing is as close as they can get to the front. As Louisa May Alcott, author of Little Women and Civil War Nurse, put it, That way the fighting lies, and I long to follow. What is it you're about to encounter? Well, nothing nice, I'll tell you that. Despite the romantic image of Lady Nurse as ministering angel, your life is going to be gross, tedious, and occasionally horrifying. From the moment they're wounded, soldiers are on the clock in terms of their chances of survival. First, they sit in the field, then in a makeshift field hospital, and then they go by train car or wagon to a more established one. Even before the soldiers are injured, they're in a less-than-fresh situation. And because ambulances aren't amazing in this era, the wounded often sit out in the field and in the sun for hours, spoiling like an overripe peach. So when a battle happens, you'd better be ready for the stinky flood that's coming your way. All is chaos and confusion, the wounded lying on every available floor and hall space, all filthy and all in desperate need of your attention. Often, you'll be one of the first people to give their ailments any serious attention at all. Nurse Mary Finney, stationed at Alexandria's Mansion House Hospital, said, Such a sorrowful sight. Some of them had been lying there three or four days, almost without clothing, their wounds never dressed, so dirty and wretched. Someone gave me my charges as to what I was to do. It seemed such a hopeless task to do anything to help them that I wanted to throw myself down and give it up. We're talking body odor, plus festering wounds, plus several layers of mud and grime, and boots that probably haven't been taken off for a while. Clara Barton was horrified when she peeled off one man's socks to find that his toes were matted and grown together and now dropping off at the joints. Ew. TMI, Clara. In other words, prepare yourself for smells strong enough to knock you over. Many an inexperienced nurse will faint or get sick because of it. Confederate nurse Kate Cumming took a no-fuss attitude to the stench. 
the foul air from this mass of human beings at first made me giddy and sick, but I soon got over it. Just stuff some camphor-soaked cotton balls up your nose. That might help. Let's remember that we women nurses will never have seen this kind of carnage before. We'll never have seen this many strange men before, let alone ones with festering wounds and matted toes that we're expected to clean with our hands. So if you feel like running away, don't worry, you're in good company. Louisa May Alcott was so overwhelmed on her first day that she hid behind a pile of clothes. With all of this chaos, your days will take on a kind of brutal rhythm. You'll work in shifts, up either before the sun or long after it's set. If you're a day nurse, you might throw open the windows in an attempt to clear out the horror show stink. Remember that you probably believe that pestilence is spread by air, so even being here is, for you, a risky venture. After some spoon-feeding, Bible-reading, and letter-writing, you might make your way to breakfast. Fried beef, stale bread, and really bad coffee. Mmm... Then it's back to the wards, changing sheets, washing floors, cutting away dirty clothes, and ridding men of creepy crawlies. You'll also be getting bodies ready for burial, doing laundry, and maybe baking. Hopefully not all at once. Sometimes, often, caring for the wounded will mean getting a bit more up close and personal with male bodies than you've ever been before. This is one of the more difficult aspects of nursing for both men and women. Having to wash around a stranger's Longfellow really violates Victorian notions of feminine modesty. This is an age where you're not supposed to talk about arms and legs, but call them limbs. So of course you'll be using codes for these duties. Bathing a man's nether region, for instance, is called finishing him off. That turn of phrase has not aged well. We'll work around this whole embarrassment by doing it as quickly and quietly as possible. It is important work, just awkward for all concerned. That's how our friend Louisa May felt when a matron dragged her out from behind the safety of her clothes pile and told her to undress and wash some wounded. If she had requested me to shave them all or dance a hornpipe on the stove funnel, I should have been less staggered. But to scrub some dozen lords of creation at a moment's notice was really, really... However, there was no time for nonsense. I drowned my scruples in my washbowl, clutched my soap manfully, and assuming a business-like air, made a dab at the first dirty specimen I saw. You know what else is awkward? You're having to treat patients with venereal diseases, of which there are many. Often, treatment starts with a good old-fashioned washout. Sometimes that comes in the form of our old friend, the enema. There are also things to stick up the urethra just for giggles. Nitrate of silver or sugar of lead, for instance. Doesn't that sound fun? I can't wait to assist with that. Do the men in charge appreciate this help you so freely given? Are they clapping you on the back and saying, thanks a million, ma'am? Well, some of them are. But the surgeons? Not really. Even years into the war, there are people who still think women don't belong in the public sphere. And anyway... As surgeon John H. Brinton writes, nurses complain too much. 
Can you fancy half a dozen or a dozen old hags? For that is what they were. Surrounding a bewildered hospital surgeon, each one clamorous for her little wants, and rooms so scarce and looking glasses so few. How little gratitude one did receive. Usually nothing but complaints, fault-finding as to yourself, and backbiting as to companions of their own sex. In short... This female nurse business was a great trial to all the men concerned. This is a whole new frontier for us ladies. For the first time in your life, you're unchaperoned and surrounded by strange men. I can't emphasize how big a change this is for most of us. This is particularly striking for middle and upper class lady nurses, which make up the majority of the lady nursing corps, and who have all their lives been subject to society's strict courtship rules. Many of these men come from a lower class than you do, and so you're likely to hear some rough language and be subject to blatant, mostly unwelcome come-ons. That said, the soldiers tend to respect their lady nurses. They have to. As nurse Amanda Aiken from New York said, We pass up and down among these rough men without fear of the slightest word of disrespect. They feel their dependence upon us for comfort and entertainment. Easy for Amanda to say. Although most of the soldiers behave when you're around, some might find your presence a little too exciting. In a world where private and public spheres, and thus unrelated men and women, don't overlap much, ladies in hospitals are a confusing thing. Some men think it means you're fair game for flirting, or maybe even something a little less genteel. Lucy Parker was a matron in a hospital in Illinois when she was assaulted by J.C. Webb, a hospital steward, who attempted to drag her into a bedroom. J.A. Jackson, a surgeon, reported later that she was suffering from intense pain with profuse flowing. She didn't want to charge Webb with assault, but Jackson did. He was dismissed from the service. Suck on that, Webb. But just as war is changing the rules of intimacy in ways that might threaten women, this gray area also means that many are discovering what it means to live freely. Take young Cornelia Hancock. At age 23, this rosy-cheeked damsel tried to volunteer through General Dix, who thought she was way too young and pretty. While Dix and her chaperone were arguing at the train station, Cornelia just went ahead and hopped onto the train to the front. She nursed there, independent of any organization, for two years. In her duties as a nurse, she rode horses, cursed. She even lived alone. When her family wrote to say they were worried for her virtue, she replied that they cannot expect everyone to be satisfied to live in as small a circle as themselves in these days of great events. Besides, First Ladies Mary Todd Lincoln and Verena Howell Davis both made a habit of going out to hospitals in Washington and Richmond, bringing the wounded treats and dabbing their brows. It isn't loved by everyone, but they make the practice fashionable, even socially desirable. And after all, as South Carolinian Phoebe Yates Pember said, A woman must soar beyond conventional modesty considered correct under different circumstances. But women like Mary and Verena just come for brief visits. You, you're here for the long haul. 
and your conventional modesty will take a definite beating when confronted with Civil War battle wounds and doctors' means of treating them. These are numerous and horrible, so let me just give you a sampling. Walt Whitman found a boy in a Washington hospital whose bladder had been shot through six months before. He observed that the wound was still oozing, leaving him... So that he lay almost constantly in a sort of puddle. Some of the cures for diseases like rheumatism is actually to blister the pain spot to increase circulation. As you can imagine, this is effective only in inducing screams. I've had very hard work today, South Carolinian Ada Baycott said. Addressing blisters is no easy task. Part of the problem is the fairly newfangled Manet ball. Instead of punching right through, these soft lead balls tend to flatten on impact, shattering bone and letting in clothes, skin, and other bits. It doesn't help that doctors are using dirty tools. Infection is a constant problem, and that means it's time to help with an amputation. Three of every four Civil War surgical procedures are amputations. Why so many? Because without antibiotics, there's little to be done about gangrene but chop off the offending limb before infection can spread. The image of a soldier being subjected to a bone saw is disturbing, I grant you, but it isn't as barbaric as it seems to us now. It's cutting edge for the time, and it saves a lot of lives. They use chloroform to knock out patients, a relatively new procedure. Though occasionally they do run out, and then, well, at least you're there to hold his hands. There are surgeons, especially early on in the war, who've never amputated anything. Sarah Emma Edmonds, union nurse and secret lady soldier, compared one surgeon's work to watching someone tuck into a Thanksgiving turkey. It was his first attempt at carving, and the way in which he disjointed limbs I shall never forget. Ooh, that's a gross one. It's disgusting. Watching incompetent doctors, made callous by the sheer number of patients they have to get through, is going to seriously try your patience. While helping with an amputation, Louisa May Alcott was less than impressed with a surgeon's bedside manner. When he commanded her to hold the patient down, she... Obeyed, cherishing the while a strong desire to insinuate a few of his own disagreeable knives and scissors into him and see how he liked it. To be fair, these surgeons were often working on days without sleep, very few supplies, and a constant sea of patients. He has to try to fix them up as fast as he can. So as nurse, will you be asked to take up the bone saw? Of course not. Ladies aren't surgeons, damn it. But wait, one of them is. Dr. Mary E. Walker was an assistant surgeon for the Union Army, a graduate of Syracuse Medical College, and the second woman ever in America to get a medical degree. She volunteered her services at the U.S. Patent Office. She was rejected when she applied for an official position in the Army, but in 1862 she went to Virginia anyway, wearing men's pants, boots, cloak, and a broad-brimmed beaver hat. At Fredericksburg, she gave orders so loudly and with such confidence that the guys around her just did what she said. But she got a lot of flack from the doctors. They refused to work with her, and they spread rumors that she was, you guessed it, harlot. 
By the time she was officially appointed assistant surgeon in 1864, she'd seen her fair share of bone saw action. She also crossed over the lines between armies to tend to women needing a midwife, helping soldiers and civilians suffering from typhoid, and, you know, doing a touch of spying here and there. But twice as many patients are dying of disease than from battle wounds. There were some 75,000 cases of typhoid fever in the Union Army alone. Things like dysentery, pneumonia, mumps, measles, and tuberculosis spread like wildfire through dirty hospitals with understocked medical cabinets and undernourished bodies. A hopeless desperation when one is engaged in a contest with disease, one officer stationed in the South said, the evening dews fall only to rise again with fever in their breath. Doctors are forever running out of medicine, especially when the enemy messes with railroad supply lines. So about two-thirds of the medicine used in the war is botanical. Harriet Tubman, underground railroad conductor and all-around badass, used her knowledge of local plants to tend to an ever-growing number of sick. She did so well with her ministrations that she was called to a union outpost in Florida, where many men were dying of dysentery, and nursed both contrabands, what they called escaped enslaved people, and soldiers. Somehow, she managed not to get sick herself, which is pretty incredible if you think about it. You are spending a lot of time with sick people, and probably working long hours without enough food or rest. You'll be tempted to keep going night and day, as the flow of needy soldiers is never-ending. Confederate nurse Carrie Cutter was the first girl to become a nurse for the South, serving alongside her surgeon father. She died at age 18 of typhoid fever. Disease is what ended Louisa May Alcott's nursing career. She got so sick that her father had to come and get her. This is truly the biggest enemy you'll face. It's worth noting, too, that women nurses aren't just tending to soldiers in hospitals. They're also going to horrifically terrible army prisons, offering aid and comfort to the soldiers rotting away in there. Sometimes they even tend to enemy soldiers, which obviously causes some consternation. When Union lady spy Elizabeth Van Lu and her mother went to tend to Union soldiers in Richmond, the hotbed of the Confederacy, the press had an absolute field day. These two women have been expending their opulent means and aiding and giving comfort to the miscreants who have invaded our sacred soil, bent on raping and murder, the desolation of our homes and sacred places, and the ruin and dishonor of our families. But women can get away with this because, in large part, of their role as society's pillars of humanity. It's the Christian thing to do, they cry. And thus they help save and comfort many soldiers on both sides of the line. So what happens when you find an enemy soldier under your care in a hospital? What do you do then? We haven't yet seen the Geneva Convention, which will dictate that wounded soldiers should be cared for no matter what their politics are. For nurses like Clara Barton, this idea seemed clear and simple enough. For others, it's harder. Confederate nurse Kate Cummings said of dealing with some wounded Yankees, Before I went in, I thought I would be polite. 
But when I saw them laughing and apparently indifferent to the woe which they had been instrumental in bringing upon us, I could not help being indignant. Seeing an enemy wounded and helpless is a different thing from seeing him in health and power. Almost inevitably, you're going to find yourself woefully short on supplies of all kinds. Dix-approved nurse Lucy L. Campbell Kaiser complains, The fact was I could not get enough food. Butter out, sugar out, no crackers, poor bread, tough beef. No vegetables, no candles. In fact, the commissary was bare, and the officers in town on a drunk. And this is where aid societies like the USSC come in, supplying everything from bandages and medicines to canned fruit and candy. Here's a mere sampling of what the Women's Central Association of Relief was able to collect and distribute from 1861 to 63. 91,000 socks, 28,000 pillowcases, 4.5 thousand pounds of pickles, more than 16,000 jars of jelly. They held huge fundraising fairs and bazaars. At one of the biggest, Abe Lincoln himself put up 10 signed copies of the Emancipation Proclamation for sale at $10 a pop. This would be a great time for us time travelers to grab ourselves a copy and bring it home with us. Hello, we're rich! These fairs raised millions of dollars for soldier care and aid. But individual women also found ingenious ways to collect supplies. Mary Ann Bickerdyke, a nursing dynamo we'll hear more about later, found every opportunity to collect supplies from other ladies. At a speaking engagement at a church, while explaining how she bound up amputee stumps when she ran out of bandages, she told the audience members to stand up and drop a petticoat. She then collected them, filling up three trunks, and took them to Andersonville Prison to bind up wounds with. With so much disorganization and chaos, there's a lot of room for women nurses and matrons to take the initiative, particularly when it comes to nutrition. In 1863, the Senate refused to spend more than 10 cents a day on food for a wounded soldier, and the House put down a bill to provide any trained cooks. There were points at which wounded soldiers were quite literally starving. Emily Mason, the superintendent at a Richmond hospital, was damned if she wouldn't scare up a Christmas meal for her soldiers. She found a way to supply 15 turkeys, 150 chickens and ducks, oysters, custard, pudding, and more. The issue isn't just that there isn't enough food. It's that most of it is fatty, dried meat, and hardtack, and much of that is spoiled. Soldiers are suffering almost constantly from serious gastrointestinal wobblies. We're talking some 711 cases per every 1,000 soldiers, and there is no Pepto-Bismol to soothe it. Annie Wittenmeyer was horrified when she found her brother David, sick with dysentery and typhoid, with only rotten food to get by on. She asked the U.S. Christian Commission to give her the funds to set up special diet kitchens. These were revolutionary. Special meals were made for specific patients with the aim of trying to heal him through nutrition. Annie set up several of these kitchens, all run by female superintendents. She even published a recipe book with the Christian Commission filled with the kinds of recipes that the wounded could actually eat. 
Despite this innovation, Annie was continually battling haters, accusing her of fund and supply mismanagement. It probably didn't help that by 1862, this single mother was making $100 a month for her war work, a huge sum for a woman, and enough to make her the subject of suspicion and wrath. A convention held in Iowa in 1863 that was supposed to be about organization and funds ended up being an unofficial trial of Annie. They accused her of a range of things, including, of course, accusations of harlotry. The list included waste of goods, embezzlement of stores, and reveling, and carousing with the officers, and drinking the wines, and eating the delicacies. It got so bad she had to resign. Whatever supplies you have, you'll have to make sure to guard them. People will steal them if they get the chance. Mary Ann Bickerdyke was particularly annoyed when she suspected that hospital workers were filching food she'd set aside for the wounded. So she stewed some peaches, laced them with some kind of purgative, and left them out to cool while she went about her business. Soon enough, she heard unhappy calls from the kitchen, but she was unrepentant. She told them next time they stole some of her peaches, they might find themselves with a belly full of rat poison. Are you in love with Mary yet? I am. Armed with turkeys and peaches or not, there will be times when you have to watch a lot of suffering and not be able to do anything to stop it. But your job isn't just to tend to a soldier's physical needs. There are his social and psychological ones as well. Most soldiers have never been this far away from home and have never, ever known a life without the attentions of a mother, a wife, a sister, or some other female family member. Before the war, the vast majority of people died at home. Hospitals are only for the indigent or hapless. Women are an important part of the notion of the good death, a way of dying Victorian society holds very dear. Usually, this ritual involves being in bed surrounded by loved ones to whom you make your last confessions and explain your willingness to go to God. Last words are hugely important in this era. If your loved ones don't hear them, they won't know whether or not they will see you again in heaven. To die far from home without this ritual is a horrifying prospect for these soldiers, and they're scared of it. Helping them is something only a female nurse can truly do. So they'll often ask you to write letters home for them, composing some last words that you think their female family members might appreciate. You might wash their bodies, as their relatives would, and get them ready for a proper burial or to be shipped home. In dire circumstances, you might even stand in as substitute kin. Clara Barton was called to the bedside of a boy who was dying and calling out for his sister Mary. In his delirium, he thought she was Mary, and though she couldn't quite bring herself to call him brother, she did pretend so as to bring him some comfort. There's a popular Civil War song that captures this scene exactly. It's called, Be My Mother Till I Die. Let me kiss him for his mother, or perchance a sister dear. Farewell, dear stranger brother, our requiem, our tears. You'll probably have to deal with what they call soldier's heart. What we, in our century, might call PTSD. 
One night, Louisa May Alcott found herself alone in a ward after a recent battle, next to a man who spent his night reliving it. He cheered or cried out to friends who had fallen, ducked incoming shots. He even tried to pull Louisa away from imaginary bursting shells. Meanwhile, another patient kept shambling through the ward and crashing into beds, telling her that he was dancing his way home. Things got so bad that the 12-year-old drummer boy burst into tears in the corner, weeping for the man who died saving his life. Needless to say, there is no worse night for a nurse. You look at these poor, wounded soldiers almost like your children, and they're looking to you to provide the comforts they've been denied. At least 10% of women nurses will break down under the emotional strain of those burdens. With such heavy baggage to bear, you'll have to find time to hunker down now and then and have a good cry. Or you'll just find a way to numb out completely. As Amanda Aiken wrote home to her sister, It seemed to me that I had forgotten how to feel. It seemed as if I were entirely separated from the world I left behind. Amanda wasn't the only one. Young Cornelia Hancock felt increasingly numbed by her experiences of horror and more and more detached from the life she'd left behind. After the Battle of Gettysburg, she wrote home that I could stand by and see a man's head taken off and not feel much of anything at all. One of the things that makes women truly crucial to the nursing effort is how many of them roll up their sleeves and say, This place is gross. I'll go get the mop. Doctors are often so busy chopping off limbs and being important that they don't have time for housekeeping. Which is more important, saving a young man from gangrene or scrubbing a floor? I ask you. But as keepers of the home and guardians of the family's health, women understand that cleanliness matters. If there's one thing we know how to do in this era, ladies, it's clean. Sally Louisa Tompkins converted her Richmond home into a 22-bed hospital early on in the war. Though she couldn't offer any real medical training, she did offer soldiers a well-kept place to rest. Her main ingredients for success were clean air, light, whiskey, and prayers. This treatment seemed to work. Of 1,333 patients, she had only 73 of them die a much better batting average than others. Jefferson Davis, Confederate president, made her a captain in the cavalry, which made her one of the only, if not the only, official female officer. Before long, you might get sick of being stuck in a hospital far from where the action is. That was certainly true for Harriet Eaton from Maine, I am more than ever dissatisfied with this way of working. I reach the suffering and destitute so indirectly. I don't want to sit here and do the polite for the mess table, but would much prefer to live on hardtack and a cup of tea untrammeled. Most nurses, especially those working for organizations like the Sanitary Commission, stay in hospitals well behind the front lines. But some women see that there's a clear need for help and supplies at the front at field hospitals close to the actual fighting, but also at the battle as it's happening. But it's one thing to dab brows and read the Bible aloud in a proper hospital. But to go out to the field, oh my, prostitute central. Most of the men in charge in the field do not want you there. 
I can't stress enough how unseemly they think this is. But women like Clara Barton and Marianne Bickerdyke saw clearly how many men lost their lives because of how long it took them to get to proper hospitals. They needed more help at the front, and they were determined to give it. Field hospitals are makeshift, intense, crowded, and dangerous. Let's have our poet friend Walt Whitman describe the scene of the Battle of Gettysburg. Outdoors, at the foot of a tree within ten yards of the front of the house, I notice a heap of amputated feet, legs, arms, hands, and a full load for a one-horse cart. He said the makeshift hospital was quite crowded, upstairs and down, everything impromptu. No system, all bad enough, but I have no doubt the best that can be done. All the wounds pretty bad, some frightful, the men in their old clothes, unclean and bloody. Young Cornelia Hancock had this to say about battlefield perfume. A sickening, overpowering, awful stench announced the presence of the unburied dead. At every step, the air grew heavier and fouler until it seemed to possess a palpable, horrible density that could be seen and felt and cut with a knife. Nursing at the front is not going to be pretty. You're bound to see some fighting, and it's going to be a hard sight to forget. Sarah Emma Edmonds saw the devastation at many a battlefield. Men tossing their arms wildly, calling for help. There they lie bleeding, torn and mangled. Legs, arms and bodies were crushed and broken as if smitten by thunderbolts. The ground was crimson with blood. Battlefields are extremely gross, upsetting, but also dangerous. There's no guarantee that a stray bullet won't find its way into a hospital camp. But that didn't deter women like Clara Barton. She never nursed for a particular agency. She just collected supplies and headed out to the front to distribute them. Often, the Army's medical supplies are held back until the battle is over to ensure they aren't taken by the enemy. That means when Clara Barton arrives on the scene, she often found doctors who'd run out of everything. When she arrived at the very bloody Battle of Antietam, they had no chloroform, no bandages, no liquor, nothing. They were wrapping up wounds with corn leaves. Unsurprisingly, the soldiers love lady nurses at battlefields. Many, when they see you coming, will weep. Inventor of the special diet kitchen, Annie Wittenmeyer, dodged bullets and shells to distribute supplies. For that, Big Deal Union General Ulysses S. Grant said that, No soldier on the firing line gave more heroic service than she rendered. Mother Bickerdyke was a particularly effective and hardcore field nurse. When she marched herself over to a field hospital in Cairo, Illinois, armed with nothing but a wicker basket full of foodstuffs to offer relief aid, she found three tents in a muddy field, sweaty patients lying on dirty straw, and barely any edible food. She personally stripped every patient, washed them with hot water and brown laundry soap, then shaved them to get rid of lice. She got them fresh linens and bribed people living nearby for better food. She also did a lot of laundry. She washed almost 4,000 pieces of clothing, rinsed them in a stream, and dried them out on branches in the woods nearby. In one day. Using a wood stove, she made cookies and home remedies. She taught cooks in the field. Often men, who didn't know what they were doing, had to make the most of limited rations. She handed out panada, a gruel of brown sugar and bits of hardtack stirred into whiskey and hot water. 
All without pay, of course. She moved when the army did, prowling battlefields at night to try and find wounded soldiers. She served in 19 battles, often under active fire. Mother Biggerdyke was not always beloved by surgeons. When she dobbed one of the men for wrongdoing, and he complained about it, General Ulysses S. Grant responded, My God, man, Mother Biggerdyke outranks everybody, even Lincoln. If you have run amok of her, I advise you to get out quickly before she has you under arrest. If you think that men are confused by your presence in hospitals, things get even more confused on the battlefield. The women who follow the army around fall into certain categories. Camp followers are often soldiers' family members. They are to help with laundry and cooking. Others are peddlers, and others are harlots. Still others are considered spies. So nurses who spend time around military camps have to deal with people accusing them of being all of the above, especially harlots. And then there's the risk that you might be thrown in jail. Our surgeon friend Mary E. Walker was caught by Confederates in Georgia, mid-amputation, wearing her delightfully conspicuous fancy man outfit, and arrested under suspicion of being a Union spy. The Richmond Press had this to say about her, We must not omit to add that she is ugly and skinny, and apparently above 30 years of age. She spent a horrible six months at Castle Thunder, which was dirty, disease-ridden, with few supplies and harsh treatment. Mary had to deal with bugs, rats, rumors that she slept with guards, and guards shooting at her through the doorway. When questioned about her sex by reporters, she said, I am a lady, gentlemen, and I dare any man to insult me. She stroked a small knife in her lap for emphasis. It's worth noting, too, the following nugget. She was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for her service, and it was then taken away from her in 1917. Classy. But don't worry, she refused to give it back. And it was restored years later, in 1977. She's still the only woman who has been given that honor. All right, so are we tired of dressing festering sores? Well, good, the war is ending. Woo! So what effect has this experience had on us, lady nurses? How might this change our lot in this world? We've had, and will continue to have, a huge impact on the lives of soldiers and their families. Women nurses stay very busy after the war, setting up orphanages for veterans' children, raising money for everything from spousal support for widows to providing amputees with prosthetic limbs. Clara Barton spent years locating thousands of missing soldiers. As head of the Missing Soldiers Office, she was able to locate around 22,000 men, some of them still alive. Many women open up schools in the North and South to support and educate newly liberated people. They will go on to create organizations like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Women's Educational and Industrial Union, They create welfare programs for veterans, fallen women, and widows. But very few of them will continue working as nurses. Still, their wartime work has paved the way for things to come. In 1868, the American Medical Association will say that they think there should be some schools opened up to train nurses. 
by 1880, there will be 15 of them. By 1900, 432. These schools open up a whole new and respectable profession for women, a way to make a living and serve the greater good. More than that, their experiences in the war gave women industry and self-confidence. They experienced the world in a new way, one there was no forgetting. And that was especially true for women nurses. They could go out into the world and do things. They proved it. It was this spirit and this realization that helped fan the flames of the women's rights movement and push ladies to venture into all new territory. Until next time. Thanks for listening. If you liked it, please go subscribe and rate it on Apple Podcasts. That's the best way to help other people find me. For loads of great visuals to go along with this episode, come find me on Instagram at The Exploress Podcast. You'll find me on Twitter at The Exploress Pod and Facebook at The Exploress Podcast. For show notes, a list of my sources, transcripts, images, and lots more, check out my website, www.TheExploressPodcast.com. Send me an email while you're there. I'd love to hear from you. All the love to Paul Gablonski for my logo and theme music, and to the following extra-talented humans for their vocal stylings. John Armstrong, Stephen Reichel, Kath Brandwood, Melissa Fasanich, Nancy Wasner, Andrew Goldman, Billy Kaplan, Edie Chevalier, Hi Mom, Louisa Matthew, Phil Chevalier, Beth Farrakhone, Claire Burke, and Eve Carey. Next time on the Explores. Civil War nurse Clara Barton earned her title as the Angel of the Battlefield, tending to thousands of soldiers, both on the field and off of it. But she was also a cracking teacher, a pioneering clerical worker at a time when very few women held down full-time government jobs, the founder of the Red Cross, and the person largely responsible for the first aid kit you've got somewhere. She did more in her lifetime than most of us could do in five. But Clara wasn't an angel. She was more complicated and more interesting than all that. She was a warrior, fighting for her right to make a difference in the world, in a myriad of ways. In this episode, let's explore the life of this extremely ambitious trailblazer, Grab a ruler, some bandages, and your traveling camp bed. Let's go traveling. <laughs>